This is the Persistence of Christian Memory podcast, episode number 20, with Vince Darty and Bruce Darty. Good evening, Dan. Good evening, Vince. Good to see you again. Good to be back in the saddle and uh, looking forward to our episode tonight. Tonight, we want to get into a discussion on uh, music, especially uh, instrumental music when it comes to the restoration movement. And uh, that I'll let you take it from there. Tonight, uh, I want to read from a little bulletin from Midway College. And it tells us uh, about the history of an object that is in the library at uh, the campus. It is a donation that was made that, that's probably the most uh, often viewed object in the library. And it is a melodeon dating from the 19th century. This is the melodeon that is believed to have been uh, the origin of controversy that eventually uh, split the restoration movement into two different churches, the Christian church, or known as also as the Disciples of Christ, and the Churches of Christ. In the early 19th century, there was a lot of discord among the various denominations on the American frontier. And in an effort to uh, mitigate uh, these doctrinal controversies and denominational controversies, Alexander Campbell was one who suggested that Christians should be able to exercise their own freedom of choice in matters that weren't essential to Christian faith. He did, however, teach that worship should be patterned after the simple example indicated in the New Testament. These two principles came into conflict when, about the mid of the 19th century, musical instruments began being introduced into the worship of these uh, restoration churches. Since the New Testament did not explicit, explicitly authorize musical instruments, many believed that their use was a dangerous, unscriptural practice that would turn plain worship into just an entertaining show. For others, choosing to play an instrument during worship was a matter of preference or expedience in which they believed Christian liberty should rule. The chief founder of Midway College, a man by the name of Dr. L. L. Pinkerton, this was his belief. And so he was a very controversial figure. Pinkerton also officiated at the Midway Christian Church. And it was his idea that instrumental music could be a means of expressing faith as well as a way to improve congregational singing. And as far as be, can be determined, the melodeon that appeared one Sunday in the Midway, Midway Christian Church was the first musical instrument used in service in any congregation that was associated with the Campbell Stone Reform Movement. Uh, Pinkerton made a request of Thompson Parrish, son of uh, the, the another co-founder of Midway College, to play the melodeon at worship services. Gradually, in the years to come, as other congregations introduced pianos and organs in the service of worship, their use became very controversial and a test of fellowship. Generally speaking, congregations that used instruments tended to call themselves a Christian church or disciples of Christ, and congregations that did not, Churches of Christ. The melodeon that is on display in Midway was referred to as an instrument of Satan by the dissenting church members. 
The tension surrounding the melodeon finally erupted in 1860 when Adam Hibbler, an elder of the church, removed the melodeon during the night. Hibbler was assisted by his servant Reuben, who passed the instrument through the window to Hibbler. And the in musical instrument ended up in Hibbler's barn. Later, it was discovered in the possession of Mary and Elizabeth Nugent, the Nugent sisters of Versailles, Kentucky, were the daughters of James Nugent, a friend of Hibbler. And the Nugent family uh, believed that the Melodeon had been purchased at a sale for $1.65. And through the different sources, it's believed that Hibbler gave the Melodeon to Nugent, or to Robert Alexander, a mutual friend of the two men, and he gave it back to Nugent at a later date. Midway officials at the time were satisfied that this musical instrument found in Nugent's home was indeed the original melodeon first played at Midway Christian Church. A local entrepreneur, uh, James Ware Paris II, was captivated by, captivated by this instrument of Satan and its historical significance. And he donated the funds for the purchase of the Melodeon so that it could be housed at Midway College. Since its return to Midway College campus, the Melodeon has attracted thousands of visitors. Interested individuals who want to view the musical, musical instrument that became a symbol of the division that ultimately resulted in the establishment of two separate and distinct fellowships, the Christian Church, or Disciples of Christ, and the Church of Christ, which to this day prohibits the use of instrumental music in worship. I think this was a uh, fair assessment uh, by Midway College of uh, this object that is so unique in, uh, in their possession. Uh, it may not be completely accurate. There are some uh, indications that perhaps a church in Cincinnati was using a uh, musical instrument in worship uh, as early as 1855 before the Melodeon was in introduced in 1859. But it does point out uh, to us, Vince, that uh, the controversy surrounding uh, uh, the instrumental music and whether it should uh, be introduced into the worship of the church is indeed one of the wedges that has split the restoration movement. And in our discussion and conversation tonight, uh, I want us to think a little bit about uh, the restoration principle, and especially as it applies to the idea of our music in worship. Yeah, Dad, um, I guess my first thoughts on uh, thinking about the Melodeon and uh, introducing um, instrumental music in worship, uh, in my mind, first, I would go back to, um, you know, what does history itself have to uh, say? You know, going all the way back, obviously, to the first century, the New Testament, um, but even, you know, those first um, uh, people from uh, the second century and, and how they uh, thought about it. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of avenues that we could go uh, to. Uh, certainly, um, when we look in our New Testaments, uh, our New Testament speaks only of singing as far as what New Testament Christians did. Uh, and it is singing exclusively in a world that uh, through 
Gentile or pagan temple worship and Jewish temple worship. They knew a lot about instrumental music. But when it came to its use in the Christian congregations of the Christian assemblies, uh, the absence of a reference to instrumental music is uh, very striking. And then, of course, we could check on a whole lot of uh, quotes that come to us from, uh, as you said, the second and third century church, uh, so-called church fathers, who are unanimous in their agreement uh, regarding the uh, that uh, the early church did not use uh, instruments of music. Um, Kurt Sachs of Columbia University, uh, one of the most eminent musicologists of our time, has said all ancient church Christian music was vocal. Vocal. Uh, another uh, uh, ancient authority on the, or an authority of uh, on the uh, ancient church is uh, a man by the name of Joseph Bingham of the Church of England, and he wrote a book called Antiquities of the Church in which he said, music in the church is as ancient as the apostles, but instrumental music is not. And so uh, we could go all the way back to those days, but uh, we're going to concentrate mostly tonight on uh, some things regarding uh, the views of the men of the Restoration Movement uh, and how they looked at this idea of music in the church. Now, the principle they were applying was the, uh, again, the restoration plea to follow the scriptural patterns and divinely approved examples of the apostles and first Christians. For example, just think of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me even as I also follow Christ. And so uh, the example uh, that we find in the New Testament and understanding to the need and necessity of having authority or uh, Bible sanction for what we say and do, whether in apostolic example or in the specific uh, imperatives or commands, tells us that uh, the music uh, that they followed was, again, a cappella or strictly vocal music. J.H.D. Thompson was a veteran preacher from Kansas. And uh, at the turn of the last century, uh, from the 19th to the 20th century, he said that Christians should follow Paul, who sang, and not David, who played. He also went on in a little uh, article that he wrote. He said, the Apostle Paul says, I will sing, but he does not say, I will play on an organ, harp, or other instrument. And there's an in interesting fact about J.H.D. Thompson. He had been a music teacher as far as his profession and then had uh, become a preacher in the Restoration Movement. And so he knew all about music and he knew all about instrumental music, but he was opposed to these in worship. One of the things this you just made me think of one of the things that made me become more involved in uh, the work of the church and more involved in uh, leading and leading in worship um, was having opportunities to uh, lead singing. Um, I don't think I would be a preacher today if I didn't start um, uh, with leading singing. 
And um, I, I love music. I love all kinds of music. Um, and I especially love music that we get to sing in the church. Um, there's something that's unique and special about it as far as my experience growing up. All right. And so uh, when we see statements like uh, that of Thompson, it helps us to understand and put in perspective then this divine principle of following the restoration plea, of going back to what those early Christians did, and to have a book, chapter, and verse for uh, the authority of, the, of what we say and do in worship. This principle then applies especially uh, when we think of music. J.W. McGarvey, who was an outstanding scholar in the middle of the uh, 19th century, he said, how then are we to decide whether a certain element in Jewish worship or in the worship of heaven is acceptable in the Christian church? And I'm sure he was referring probably to people who appealed to David and the Psalms in the Old Testament, or maybe the reference to the sound of trumpets and other kind of things in the book of Revelation as uh, shown there. And so McGarvey said, how do we decide if this is acceptable in the Christian church? And this is what McGarvey uh, stated. He said, undoubtedly, we are to decide it by the teaching of the New Testament, which is the only rule of practice for Christians. Whatever is authorized by this teaching is right, and whatever it condemns is wrong in us. And so uh, here is the principle clearly stated by McGarvey. Uh, he went on to say, and, and even uh, uh, consider the idea that maybe instrumental music is optional due to the silence of the scriptures. And again, here is where that phrase that we've studied in a, in a previous podcast, uh, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. There were some who thought that the silence of the New Testament was permissive, that is, allowing us to introduce things that had not been uh, stated. And so McGarvey said, Shall we then argue that in the silence of the New Testament, these facts should be taken as an indication of the divine will? And like the Catholics, shall we burn incense in our worship? Shall we, for the same reason, keep lamps or candles burning in our churches and uh, array our preachers in gorgeous robes? For all these, the argument, that is, the argument of silence, is valid if it is valid for instrumental music. If, therefore, we adopt the latter, we dare not pronounce any man or church unscriptural in this practice that adopts the other three. And... Uh, Go ahead. This is this is something that comes up often, and in the application comes up a lot of times as far as what is authorized. Um, some will say that if there is no divine commandment not to, that leaves it open to uh, to do. Um, one of the things I'll always remember: George Beals was uh, our hermeneutics teacher, and he would always use this example. He said, uh, "When we took we take of the Lord's Supper, are we allowed to add a third element uh, to eat white chocolate to commemorate Jesus' bones?" <laughs> and um, you know, the the that's uh, a silly uh, you know. 
a hyperbole kind of uh, example you might think of, and and uh, any reasonable person would say there is no New Testament authority for partaking of white chocolate to remember the bones of Jesus Christ. But then once we now turn that principle into other things, let's say instrumental music, now people start to have an emotional response instead of uh, what is clearly being authorized in Scripture. Right. Uh, for example, Vince, think of uh, a passage here with me, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, where the Apostle Paul, uh, as he's writing some things to the church at Corinth about regulating their worship, he says, I will sing with the spirit and the understanding. And so our singing informs our understanding. And uh, naturally, singing also excites our emotions. But the instrumental music, uh, if it it, I'm sure we would concede that, that it excites the emotions, but it does not give us any understanding. And so uh, here's where instrumental music uh, cannot uh, function and do what the Apostle Paul said uh, singing should do for us. Yeah, you can you can hear um, an instrument being played. Maybe uh, I think about a, a violin. Uh, with the violin, you can uh, em- elicit some different emotional type of responses. You can play it very lively and fast, and it can be uh, a joyous type of thing, but you could play it very slow and melodically, uh, and uh, it can elicit a, a, a sad type of emotion. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, those things can't speak. They can't talk. They cannot enunciate words. And so there's where the the difficulty is for saying if I'm going to have uh, speak and understand, it has to be with the uh, with the voice. Yeah. In fact, let me relate to you uh, uh, a thought that occurred to me at a funeral service many years ago. It was a funeral for uh, for a relative of ours and. Some of our cousins were there, and these cousins did not go to church. They didn't have any association like that. But we were sitting in the funeral home parlor, and, uh, of course, they're playing uh, music. And uh, because of uh, our being raised in the church, I recognized, you know, it was playing uh, familiar tunes to hymns that we sang. But I realized in that moment, my cousins were not benefiting anything from this music other than the, you know, the emotions that uh, the music itself might have reached because they didn't know any of the words to those songs uh, that were very familiar to me and my sisters. And so it, it was uh, in that moment uh, where, again, uh, is the realization that without the words, Uh, We're not gaining all the comfort and understanding that we could have, no matter how much uh, the instrument uh, might touch uh, some emotional level in us. Well, again, we understand that psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are what the New Testament speaks of. Uh, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, we're speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, uh, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, Brother Tillett S. Tedley uh, wrote an article back in the 1950s. He was a great song leader and preacher and uh, also hymn writer. 
But he said, commenting on these verses, since we are commanded to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, every song we sing should have an admonition, an appeal to the heart and conscience for greater consecration and devotion to God. And again, uh, the instrument alone cannot do this. And uh, so uh, sing and speak to one another is the way that uh, we are uh, able to fulfill this exhortation and uh, to speak and to teach one another in these songs. In the early days of the Restoration Movement, the, uh, there was a unity among the restorers regarding the music of the church. J.W. McGarvey, again, writing in the Millennial Harbinger, said, In the earlier years of the present Reformation, there was entire unanimity unity, in the rejection of instrumental music from our public worship. It was declared unscriptural, inharmonious with the Christian institution, and a source of corruption. And uh, again, we can find statements from earlier men like Alexander Campbell, uh, who wrote and said, we are divinely commanded to teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to sing with grateful hearts, thus making melody in the ears of the Lord of hosts. The subject matter of the Christian Psalter, psalm or hymn, is therefore of the first importance as or since it's uh, second only to the Bible, no book in the world has such an influence on the heart. And that's an important statement uh, where Campbell is recognizing the importance of the music, uh, but he is, uh, again, stressing that it is this uh, music that we would sing uh, as being pleasing to God uh, without the accompaniment of instruments. Uh, later, a very famous statement uh, that Campbell made, uh, he said, uh, only Christians who had lost their spiritual sensitivity would need the aid of instruments to stir their carnal hearts. And he said, however, to spiritually minded Christians, such an aid would be as a cowbell in a concert. And so it reminds us, and we see here in these, uh, in these uh, citations that uh, these individuals uh, were convinced that the New Testament did not authorize this, and they were united as they uh, made their practice conform to the New Testament. But of course, uh, as we read with the history of the Melodian, Instrumental music uh, did enter into the use by different churches, and it became very, very controversial. Uh, without a doubt, there were a lot of sociological factors causing this. Um, the growing prosperity of the uh, American public, uh, the improved schooling, and uh, I think increased cultural sophistication, uh, created spirit where people wanted to be like their religious neighbors and have instruments of music. Um, J.S. Lamar, another uh, restoration preacher who, however, went along with a lot of the, uh, the innovations and departures from the New Testament, he said the use of the instrument was an inevitable consequence of growth in culture. Dad, um, 
these people coming out of the denominations the um the denominations uh find their roots from the reform reformation uh so these guys uh like calvin and others um when the reformation was happening what was their perspective on um instrumental music in in worship well that's interesting i've got some quotes on <laughs> from uh, some of the reformation leaders as well um let me share just a couple of these uh with you john calvin uh said musical instruments in celebrating the praise of god would be no more suitable than the burning of incense the lighting of lamps and the restoration of other shadows of the law. Uh, he said, the Catholics therefore have foolishly borrowed this as well as many other things from the Jews. Uh, and this was from Calvin's commentary on the, 20, on the 33rd Psalm. Uh, John Wesley, uh, who is hailed by many as being the founder of the Methodist Church, he was quoted in Clark's commentary and he said, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels provided that they are neither heard nor seen. <laughs> and then Adam Clark, uh, the outstanding Methodist commentator, also said, Music as a science I esteem and admire, but instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. This is the abuse of music, and I here register my protest against all such corruptions in the worship of the author of Christianity. And so... Uh, uh, it, it's strange that in the Reformation days, uh, men like Calvin, men like Wesley, men like uh, Adam Clark were also united in their opposition to the instruments. But, but by the time of the Restoration, these denominations had evolved where they had adopted these things, right? Yes, many of them, especially in their in the in their European churches. Uh, the American frontier uh, probably took a little longer um, before the instruments came in. But again, with the affluence of the, the mid-19th century, uh, you know, church buildings were no longer the log cabins. The Cane Ridge meeting house uh, was replaced by brick and mortar buildings and uh pews with cushions on them and things like this. And, and so as things progressed, a lot of people thought the instrument was part of that progress. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point to draw out there because um, let's say you have a new congregation that's forming a very small group of people. Maybe you don't have a whole lot of uh, money or things. You can conduct a worship service on a very tight budget. Uh, but what ha what happens if you have to uh, find a piano or what happens if you have to find uh, a band or, uh, you know, something along those nature? You can do things in a very simple way. And I'm just talking about practical uh, mm -hmm. in this thing. And that's an interesting thing. Yeah. And in fact, I, I think I remember a quote from uh, some brother who was meeting behind the Iron Curtain in the years of the Cold War. And he was talking about uh, all we need to do ch church is unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. And uh, that's pretty good uh, understanding there. And so, uh, unfortunately, affluence 
creates a lot of things and certainly contributed uh, to the addition of the instrument in uh, these restoration churches. But before we lose sight of these sociological factors uh, and their impact, we need to understand that hermeneutics played a big part in what was going on. Uh, Everett Ferguson, in a little work that he uh, has talking about the instrumental music controversy, he said, whatever part economic and cultural factors played in the controversy over the presence of instruments in, music, in worship, many participants soon observed that an important factor producing division was different approaches to scripture authority and interpretation. Opponents saw the silence of scripture as pro prohibitive, whereas supporters saw it as allowing liberty. And uh, so it was the different hermeneutic that was being used as originally the instrument was brought in as an expedient. But before something can be ex an expedient, it has to first be demonstrated that it is approved by God. One of the men who was at uh, the center of all of uh, the controversy that swirled in the restoration movement in the 1860s uh, up to his death in, I believe, in 1878 was Ben Franklin, a gospel preacher out of uh, Indianapolis and editor of uh, the American Christian Review. Uh, Brother Earl West, uh, who's a great restoration historian, wrote a biography of Ben Franklin calling it The Eye of the Storm. And uh, he, he, I think, properly assesses that Franklin uh, was in the center of all the controversy that swirled on this. And so he said, in the last years of his life, after instrumental music had been appealed to as a remedy for the deficiency of the churches in singing, he, that is Franklin, frequently expressed his profound regret that more attention had not been given to the importance of singing as part of the worship of God. Franklin uh, said in his, uh, as it's recorded in his uh, book of sermons, Gospel Preacher, Volume 2, he talks about uh, worship that needs to be made according to divine authority. He says, and I quote, They do not sing because they love to sing or because they love music, but because these Christians love God and delight to do those things that are pleasing in his sight, to obey his command, to sing, making melody in their hearts to the Lord. In obeying this command, their minds are not taken up with a bundle of notebooks, tuning forks, or the, with the music at all, but they are concentrating on praising God, thanksgiving, exhortation, admonition, and teaching. I really enjoy singing. I know we enjoy singing when we get together, even just with our family. Um, there was one time I was listening to uh, 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 preacher and he was talking about um, family devotional time 
and he was talking about his family's not very good at singing. Um, but they would they would read their Bible, and they would pray, and they would sing all things that you can do um, in a family devotional time. And he said there it developed over time that singing was their favorite part of this, even though they weren't very good at it. They recognized this isn't because we just enjoy singing or we're good at it. You know, they're not going and making uh, the family <laughs> CD to to listen, but. It was something that they were devoting to God, and yes. this is what God desired from them. And uh, that was a very Im- impactful thing for me. Yes, and we always need to remember uh, we're, we're seeking to praise God in this, but praise him in the way that he has asked that we, that we praise him. In fact, uh, Franklin went on in his uh, sermon in the Gospel Preacher, he said uh, and asked the question, did our Lord use and utilize instruments of music? And he said, no. He established his religion in a country where all worshipers of all kinds used instruments in worship, but left the instruments all out. He did not leave them out because there were not plenty of them or because he could not get them or because they were not popular. They were left out because he did not want them. And Franklin said, this is a divine prohibition. And when we view things in that light, then uh, the instruments uh, aren't just simply a matter of opinion or a matter of indifference. It is where uh, we uh, understand they are things that violate this idea of thus saith the Lord. Again, Franklin uh, went on to say in his sermon in Gospel Preacher, he said, we've considered it for many years, that is instrumental music, and looked at it from every possible angle, and we've tried it in in every possible way, and our judgment, our deepest and most settled convictions are against it, as an innovation, a corruption of wor- of the worship, subversive of the di- divine purpose in worship to teach and admonish in song, uh, carnalizing the worship by turning it into an entertainment, a mere musical traction and amusement. And so again, Franklin uh, wanted to uh, not allow the instrument in uh, on this basis that there was no authority for it. That quote you just gave, um, we've considered it for many years. We looked at it at a very possible angle. If you hear a modern church say that that opening part of that quote, they're about to say, and now we've changed our minds. Yes. This is interesting where he says, we've considered it, we've looked at every angle, and we tried every, and it does not have authority. (laughs) It's pretty interesting. Yes. I've seen some statements that uh, some very famous churches have made as they have uh, adopted the instrument. And uh, I'm thinking of one out in Texas, and I know one that was much closer to home up in the Ohio Valley. Uh, and you're right. They said, we've studied this for a long time, and now we think we've found where this can come in. And it's it's totally the opposite of what Ben Franklin found as he studied his Bible. And so uh, here is where, uh, again, 
What were the results of all these things where the instrument uh, crept in and was brought in many times uh, where a, a majority in the congregation uh, would want it and have it over uh, the minority or sometimes even a minority would force it in over the majority. And uh, the, the results were just division. And that's the sad fact in all of this. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, has resulted, uh, as we've said, in the uh, dividing of the Restoration Movement uh, between the Disciples of Christ, the Christian churches, and the Churches of Christ. And sometimes, you know, you hear from time to time of people, uh, can we unite with the Christian church? And there's not all that much difference between us and those kind of things. And uh, the sad fact is in the unity meetings that have been tried between folks from time to time, um, these folks are absolutely uh, wedded uh, to the instrument of music. And it uh, reminds me of the Old Testament phrase. I think it's from uh, the book of Hosea, where uh, the Bible says Ephraim is joined to his idols. And uh, that's the, the sad reality that we look at here. Then um, when we think about these arguments uh, people will make to justify instrumental music, um, one might say, and we, we brought this up already, but the Bible doesn't forbid it. Uh, it's a matter of opinion or option, uh, and I have liberty to do this. Uh, it, does, that, does that stand? Does that hold any water? Well, uh, again, there are many, many practices uh, that people bring in that will say, well, I don't see a thou shalt not do this. For example, uh, there, the Bible does not say thou shalt not baptize infants, but I believe infant baptism is excluded by the example and the commands that we see of uh, people who are believers and able to repent uh, given the command to be baptized. And so we don't have to have a thou shalt not concerning infant baptism. We have the positive example of what the Bible teaches on this. Yeah, a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, if they'll, if they'll ask me maybe about the worship when I go to uh, assemble with the church, um, they'll say, you know, what can I expect? And one of the main differences you might be able to see first thing is in Churches of Christ, you will see a cappella music. Uh, and I've even had people say, oh, I, that's not for me. Well, if it's up to you, if it's up to me, if it's up to our own preferences, well, great, let's do however we want to. But when we're talking about the what is authorized, um, you know, God is spirit and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It has to be according to how God has regulated that. Um, and you can see this all the way from the Old Testament when you're talking about the law of Moses, um, there was instruments used in the tabernacle. There was instruments that were used during the time of David. But all these things come into being 
through authorization. God uh, makes this where if it's not done according to this way, then it is incorrect. It is something that has been changed or different. Uh, but then also now you shift and you think about the New Testament, what uh, we are authorized to do under the New Testament. There's silence. You cannot find a passage of Scripture that talks about singing with uh, accompaniment with a mechanical instrument. In fact, I think the very commands in uh, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 tell us about the music that is authorized, singing, and singing thus eliminates playing. And we do not have to have a Scripture that says, thou shalt not play, just like we don't have to have a scripture that says thou shalt not baptize infants because the positive command of sing uh, excludes all other uh, types of music. Well, and and in maybe I might differ a little bit on the, the way in which I would word it, but um, singing is authorized. Yes. Someone who, who says um, the use of the instrument uh, is not specifically... Um, you know, condemned or, or it says you can't use this. Now the burden of proof comes back to that individual who wants to bring in something else. Where is the authorization for that? Yes, yes. And uh, that's important. Another argument that uh, has been used in the different times for those who want to justify instrumental music is uh, that people will say, well, you start a song with a pitch pipe. And, uh, and so the instrument is just uh, keeping us on pitch, keeping us on t time. And uh, so if we can have a, uh, the allowance for a pitch pipe, uh, can we allow the instrument? And uh, again, the very fact of singing requires a pitch. And uh, the and so uh, unless you are gifted with perfect pitch, all of us need a little help uh, in in that from time to time. And uh, the thing, though, and the difference about uh, a pitch pipe and an instrument of music is uh, the note is made and then it is silent. It does not accompany the singing of the song. And so when uh, instruments of music continue to play throughout the song and in many ways obscure the words of the song, uh, then we're not fulfilling uh, what, uh, it, what our singing is all about. And uh, it's obvious that the uh, instrument of music is very different from a pitch pipe. Yeah, there's um, some others, maybe um, another argument someone would say is um, instruments help. It makes uh, it sound better. It makes uh, it feel like there's more people maybe than what there are. Yeah, and uh, I, I think I can remember in the early days of the restoration movement when people were trying to justify the instruments of music, and it may have even been uh, Dr. Pinkerton at uh, Midway, Kentucky. They said the singing of the church sounded so bad, even the rats uh, would leave when worship would start. 
And uh, we probably have all been in those kind of situations where, uh, as far as the aesthetic uh, appeal of of the song is uh, not maybe what we would desire it to be. But, you know, aesthetics is not the appeal of Scripture. Uh, Some of God's best singers may be people who couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. One of the things I think about for my own self growing up in the church, going to church whenever the doors are open, um, I love to sing. I have a decent ear for singing. I'm, you know, I'm not trained on any of these things, but I enjoy leading singing. I enjoy um, getting together in groups and singing. Um, and I wonder about just the exposure uh, throughout my life of being a part of this. Uh, and then the thing too, this is a, a, I think about this with compared to um, other denominations or something that have music. If people don't sing, you have the music to kind of carry the load. You know, you have the the organ or or whatever that's playing uh, to carry the load. Well, if you're in a congregation and you don't have any of those things to uh, carry the load, you better get better at singing. (laughs) You better get more people to sing out. And so uh, those are things that I think are just um, natural ways in which you're benefited by leaving those things out. Yes, and and I think uh, in previous days in the Restoration Movement, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on singing schools. And uh, I knew of a lot of gospel preachers that when they would go and hold a meeting, they would also uh, have a singing school in the day or in the hour before the preaching uh, that night. And uh, part of that was to develop congregational singing and help uh, improve this. And again, we all need to remember, though, uh, that our, uh, our song service is a part of worship. It is about teaching and admonishing one another. It's about the spiritual idea and not any sensual idea that comes along on all this music uh, lifts me to such grandeur or something like that. Another uh, argument you hear from time to time is that, well, uh, if we have instrumental music, it'll it'll keep our young people and we'll have bigger attendance and better attendance. And uh, if you look at some of these, uh, especially modern uh, churches that emphasize contemporary worship, uh, it's not just uh, it's not just uh, the organ or piano. It's a full blown uh, band and all of these kind of things. Uh, and uh, there's a there's a line that I remember from Mark Twain's book, uh, Tom Sawyer. And uh, Sawyer says at one point in uh, the book, as he is enduring a a church service that he didn't want to be at, he said, "Church ain't shucks to a circus." And I think what happens, uh, especially when we make this appeal and say we've got to have the instrument to draw in young people, is we think we've got to entertain. And we go from worship into performance and entertainment uh, rather than trying to please God. And people can see through lack of substance. Yes. Um, and if 
you're just going to be entertained. You're going to uh, please just the senses. There's other places that can do it that much better. Yes. And and I think even the temptation of uh, people in Churches of Christ, they're going to be conservative if they if they even go, you know, however far. Uh, and someone else is going to go even further than what you are probably willing to go. And, you know, unless you're embracing we're going to just change our church into a nightclub, you're not going to out-entertain somebody else. Right. And, Vince, think of where we live here in Florida. Uh, if entertainment is what's going to draw crowds, we're not going to outdraw Disney. And so we need to get out of the entertainment business, and we need to magnify what we really are here about, and that's about worshiping God. Well, let's just summarize a, a few of the points that we've been making tonight, and uh, there are many, many other ways that we could go with uh, this study, and perhaps we'll come back to this uh, at another time. But uh, we need to see and understand worship is regulated by the New Testament. Divine authority, as expressed in the pages of the New Testament, is the basis for our worship. Worship, as we see it in the New Testament, is an activity of the mind and the heart. We are to sing with the understanding, and we teach and admonish in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, as we sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And so worship uh, is also very spiritual in nature. And only a cappella music uh, satisfies this spiritual dimension and the requirement for acceptable worship. We need to resist uh, conforming to social and cultural forces. You know, that's always a reality. Uh, there's always a world around us. We don't have uh, our worship done in a vacuum. And, uh, and again, are we going to be countercultural? or just surrender to the culture that's going on around us. And so, uh, despite ridicule and scorn, the restorers of long ago refused to turn to the practices of the denominations, and in fact, their plea was to come out of those things. And we need to make that same kind of a appeal today. And... Uh, we can resist the innovation of the instrument if we have uh, good hymnals and good training in our singing uh, and uh, people to, uh, to unite us in that part and aspect of our worship. I want to close my part of this tonight with just a little quote from Brother Tillett Tedley, again, a great gospel preacher and a great hymn writer. He said, Behold, a church of Christ so filled with the spirit and love of Christ that its songs become an uplifting to God, a sacrifice to God continually, that is the fruit of the lips which make confession to his name. Hebrews thirteen fifteen, the fruit of our lips. Yes. That, uh... I love singing, and I love times when um, we can get together and sing as a family. I love times in which we can get together singing with our church family. And I remember 
Hiram, he talked to me one time and he said, when you think about the avenues of worship, singing is not one of those things that's going to go away when we get to heaven. Be thou my beloved. 